0: Right. Also I've got a, an anecdote about it's a boring anecdote, but my copy got um completely like messed up by my lansom uh cleaning fluid that my landlord had left in a cupboard above my post box. I love that. <laughs> and then so I had to like dry it's quite it's an artifact really, really. So I had to kind of like dry it out for ages, <laughs> like like this, so it didn't all stick together. It's kind of gone green. And then in the period while I'm waiting for this to dry out, which took a few days uh before I could read it. My landlord put my rent up by 21.4%. I'm like, this is an extremely <laughs> this is very relevant, so I'm gonna treasure
1: it. It absorbs the pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. It
1: looks really well read. I'm really happy about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does mean that I've kind of been like, well I'm breaking the spine, you know, I don't you know, oh. it's kind of rising all over it. So yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Okay, so, um, right, I'll introduce it. Welcome to Culture, Sex, Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Yvette Taylor. Yvette, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Yvette has written this really fascinating book called Working Class Queers, Time, Place and Politics. Uh, let's do the plugs up front, uh, Yvette. So it's out on Pluto Press. It's out now, isn't it? It's been, been out for a few weeks, has it? Is that right? Um yeah.
1: End of me, I think. End of me, beginning of June.
0: Okay. Um, and, yes, yeah, so it's on Pluto Press. They're great. I buy all my Pluto Press books from um, Pluto websites, uh, and I think that's a cool thing to do. They also do DRM-free PDF uh, downloads of the book, so you're not tied to Kindles and things like that. It's all very, you know uh post capitalist and uh, anti-platform capital, which we like. So bye, bye, bye. It's really, really interesting. Um fascinating in fact. And I was saying to you before we came before we pressed record Yvette, that it's um it's a it's an easy to read book. It's uh it's it's not like an academic y kind of book. It's it's very it's very accessible. But it doesn't tell a simple story. So we're not gonna tell, we're not gonna use this podcast to tell a simple story about working classness, well, working class and queerness, um, mm-hmm. because it's um, it's interesting how the time and the place and the politics produce lots of unique working class queernesses throughout the book, and you do that through telling stories, um, don't you? Is that, is that something you were deliberately doing, or is that a, just a function of um, how the research went?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... I think that is, so it's based on about 20 years of research. It covers a span of 20 years and, you know, there's been lots of political shifts in that time. And of course, because interviews um, have ranged in age from I think 16 to in their 60s, it it means some people have lived or were born in the um, post-World War II period and, and all the subsequent decades thereafter. So it includes a massive kind of social History as well, and it's right up till the sort of um, post and inverted commas pandemic uh, period, um, and it sort of problematizes these crises as forever happening. um, So, nonetheless, it tries to. Group these experiences across that that um, twenty year time period. So sort of from the hope of new the New Left, the New, new Labour, to um, the Conservative government, the Brexit period, and, and into the pandemic and post pandemic period. And um, when you interview so many people and there's so many stories to tell, then it can be a question of well, who makes it on the page? What to select and foreground, um, and how can we kind of shift? A typical go-to work message about working class lives as straight and white and um- or, you know, a story of loss, a story of recovery that's romanticised. How can we shift that so it is complex, but it's still um, accessible and readable. Um, and Pluto were great at saying, you know, this is a crossover um, publication. It should appeal to academic and non-academic um, readers. And so I was always struggling with that um, and imagining, um, not that, I mean, I know people who are not academics, right, but what is that non academic reader and here we're setting up as the academic and non-academic as a binary yeah. there um, and especially and this is something to write about in terms of my own biography and investment mm-hmm. in writing about working class queers when you've uh, worked so hard to become academic mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and to learn the academic language which means um, learning a particular reading list it takes a lot to kind of discard that and undo that and make a reading list or writing in style anew so um, which is you know I'm really grateful to, um, to hear that it comes across as accessible because I aim for that but um, there's an uneasiness and a struggle in that you know when the book's done and it's published and it's out there uh, there's a behind the st- or before and behind the scenes story to tell about just sure. how hard that is. I think.
0: I think it's really interesting how that comes across. That uh, the, the, yeah, you, you bring your your research into this, and you 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 bring your life into this in a, in a way which is um, which intersects. Sorry, I'm using it on the other the other way, dear listener. So it intersects with the stories of the people that you're telling. Um, and so you're almost having to kind of make a case for the, the these the data from these findings from these really in depth interviews that you're doing over many many years as being really powerful data, and you know you're you're having to kind of like fight against the kind of academia which says that everything has to be very theoretical or have be grounded in a particular theory, and yet you're allowing these these unique stories of um, of individuals to to be the work and to to not to uphold any theories but to allow for um the understanding of the work to come through their stories I suppose
1: Mm, yeah yeah Yeah, and it's always a question like um how your own story is always a social story and how much you put of yourself in the pictures so as to um position yourself vis-a-vis your interviews and but also not take up too much space because um It's not you're not just the sample sample one so to speak so it's always quite tricky um, to navigate that but it's never and it's never a static story so I didn't want to say like you know I am the authentic working class uh, queer and when these terms have shifted to
0: yeah and I think it's about what what how things are being produced and reproduced and what and what things do rather than what things are I think that's what I found so interesting well and also like really useful um because i think when there's a, when when there is talk about what it is to be working class and what it is to be queer um they're often treated as being very different um mm. and and people end up in this kind of i suppose people end up what well, in my view you might I don't know what you think about this. I can mm. probably guess. People end up in a bit of a cul-de-sac where they're trying to kind of define something, mm. and and okay. trying to in in order that oh, I don't know, I don't, in order to do what I don't quite know. But your book doesn't do that, and is that was that deliberate in that way that you're trying to trying to see paying attention to what they do and 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 how they're produced in that way?
1: Yeah, yeah. So how does it come to matter um, mm. rather than uh, the tightness? of yeah. the definition where um, there's multiple definitions and feelings and thoughts uh, around what class is but nonetheless we can't, it still exists and we can still get a sense of it we can often quite easily um, point to it yeah. and know it um, and so quite a lot of people talked about that sense of being asked where you're from or right. um, when that question's felt in educational spaces or in not getting a job or in just opening your mouth um, and yeah I mean there's lots of different ways that uh, that's disrupted too mean, people spoke in multiple accents then people um, from outside the UK as well spoke about I mean one interview I of course remember her name then Jasleen she um, came from the Philippines worked in the NHS and during the pandemic um, the height of the pandemic and and was, was responded to my call for participants with like I'm not sure I fit your criteria because I'm right. I'm not British, Um, you know somebody who's like charged with saving the NHS and so forth still doesn't necessarily maybe think of themselves in those go-to imaginings of working class and and queer art. So I think there's uh, lots of work to do there and I think it's a a methodological problem that's um, rich rather than, you know, something to kind of (laughs) discard or abandon and say, well, working class has a category and we can't can't work with that because I think we can work still with it.
0: Oh, 100%, yeah. Um, Let's talk about the, if we can kind of talk about some of the I suppose, the political side of this and the you know, the difference between, well, from the beginning of this century to where we are now, that there was a, because I think that to kind of leap off the point that I was just making, that when we when people try to categorise working class, there is this thing I think that you, ref, you refer to or one of your, your participants refers to as uh, white, flat cap northern accent particular you know doing particular kind of jobs and that at the beginning of the of the century there was still still there was still seemed to be um that working class was belong to uh, trade unionism and it was uh, that, that those kinds of identities were being reproduced uh, through trade unionism but now that it's almost as seen as if you know there's class over here and there's lgbtq uh like rights kind of issues over here but the the political uh, i suppose um the political has kind of produced uh these kinds of ruptures between uh between class and i think what comes up is is a real sense of rupture that was coming up uh that that produces like some like okay uh like queerness like some um uh, queerness, which has like social capital uh yeah. and other queernesses which are just invisibilized right. um and this was really something that we that you we started seeing right from the new labor days when things seemed so mm-hmm. possible uh uh and um up until now so can we can we could you like talk about how your interviewees have have understood this or how you've understood this via your interviewees or what your interviewees can say about? those political uh shifts over the years sorry massive question
1: <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. it's a, a big question but when you we were <laughs> talking i immediately thought of the parents right in and the group yeah so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know they've gone from um like potentially are definitely a stigmatized potentially criminalized in terms of the loss of custody mm. battles so um gone from those times um of deep stigmatization to feeling, um, they have a definitely an entitlement um, to a parent and, um, and an entitlement to sort of the resources, um, both socially and economically that mm. um, come with that, so that um, expectation that resources will be in place for their child and. Um, that social charge to be good parents and to be responsible parents um, that was definitely something held by more middle class parents in contrast to this um, sense of just getting by and making do Mm. Um, and we've seen, so one of the periods that I look back to is the sort of, um, I mean arguably we're still in the politics of austerity but the Conservatives um, austerity uh, Period as a policy drive um, and in that moment of cutting back on the on the welfare state. So um, with that, we saw a stigmatization. And lots of people have written about this of working classes and as, as a sort of moral behaviour yeah. as well and the wrong kind of kind of parents. And um, I think you saw that as a palpable divide in um LGBT plus parents, those who who kind of could say that they were um, part of that sort of um, um, David Cameron said he was again, he was for same sex marriage and not because he was a conservative, right? And so you had, and I'm not saying that the middle-class parents were necessarily um, conservatives politically, but there was definitely that distinction around respectability and because they had thought about their parenting um, and chose parenting and were deliberate and were, you know, were, maybe still compelled to prove all the ways that they were good parents Mm. but behind that proof was this kind of lurking figure of the working class parent who didn't like choose the right school or wasn't schooling their kids properly and i think you've seen echoes of that in the pandemic Mm. as well Paints were again, and, and that was the gendered uh, debate too around who was doing the work of childcare and what that looked like, and how some paints were timetabling um the successful achieving child nonetheless. So I think I think that's a really interesting moment along that sort of individualization, um, and you know, didn't um Domestication is that word, and that return to yeah, the yeah, domestic yeah. field um, of of certain kind, and that that idea of the good family. I think that re re-emerges, yeah. that goes on repeat, um, regardless of the polit- the shifts, the political shift, right? Um, and I suppose another political shift that I was interested in, because there's the sort of, um, you know. Post Brexit, the Brexit failure and the post Brexit um, hope that you're seeing in this side, um, north of the border mm. in Scotland, um, which positions itself politically very different mm. um, from England. And I'm um, having lived in different parts of the UK, I'm a bit sceptical um, of that as a sort of as the, around the exceptionality of Scottishness. Um, yeah. I think I think a lot of people who probably grew up poor in Scotland would be <laughs> would similarly think. Um, of that and can remember when SNP was um, forthright in its conservatism. Yeah. So I think we may be a bit sceptical about that, that position and um, a different kind of place or, uh, you know, akin to the Rainbow Europe idea mm-hmm. that we can, um, you know, project sort of um, little nation um, conservatism and even racism in terms of the debates on um, post-colonialism onto Englishness and Britishness and exempt Scotland from that. So, I think, I think at that moment there was a sort of a fear and a longing for something else um, mm-hmm. for queer people in Scotland. Like, could we be nearer Europe? Um, mm-hmm. Do we, do we want to move away um, from, and should we be moving away from um, like a Cameron Johnson government? And is SNP in Scotland more left now? Um and I think that's a I think that's a good question to keep being asking, but I I don't want to um, make it um, I want to interrogate it run rather than being overly or automatically convinced that that would happen just at the moment of say independence. And I think I shared that I think that's it. Skepticism came through some accounts where um people were like, I think it's going to be another structure and it's going to be another structure in the world that's never suited me. And I think one of my interviews, I think it might be Alicia talks about, I've never fitted in in the world and I see all my futures as not fitting in um, versus some people who, you know, felt actually um, that moment of difference, of being different from England was... was, um, politically important too so just yeah. to hold them together I think yeah yeah
0: just... yeah I thought that was really interesting that I mean it hadn't occurred to me about uh to think of Brexit and queerness and mm. the way that I thought that that chapter in particular well, I found really fascinating because there's the story was it Farge who came from yeah. Morocco mm-hmm. and and other fa- and the the kind of fate you were just describing who were talking about a kind of a, a sense of a loss from the EU because of the you know how the you appears to be uh like liberal in the in the kind of um the political sense of that word um but you know farchild to navigate France and yeah. England presumably and then scot and then Scotland and then was still kind of wanting to see like some to go somewhere else to go to San Francisco, I think wasn't it True. um uh i told my girlfriend the story last night about san francisco and she was saying oh that would have been a terrible move to get to san francisco america is not good at looking after anyone who's working class um she is american uh she, just fyi uh, <laughs> um and so that kind of story was like a, a kind of uh somebody navigating what we would call fortress europe and mm-hmm. and uh and seeing a very different kind of Europe to the kind of Europe your other participants were seeing in terms of um queerness and, and liberal uh rights.
1: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And various stories uh really interesting because it uh, makes visible those kind of um yeah. flows of identity and, um rather than seeing people and places as as fixed. Um, yes. so I think you know, a, a depiction of working classes can be like stuck and sticky, and um, far as his own choice and sense of an agency. But within that, as, as they're telling their story, and I think this is in some ways uh, unremarkable because it's a go-to uh, story of um, the different kind of and bad decision making that they've managed to kind of um, it's almost a meritocratic narrative that they've chosen and they've been agentic and i should say that um first, as a result of different border um controls and boundaries and feeling that movement as as necessary um, has movement states from being middle class um, to a more working class reality Mm -hmm. so um, and and what happens when um, you've had and held sort of middle class capitals but lost them as a result of your gender and sexuality and I think as far as just movements and sort of future desires because they are somebody who's been to university Um, they are somebody who is imagining a sort of future professional life Mm. for themselves Um, and that's not to sort of uh, discount that, I mean we all imagine a future hopefully um, and the the book's trying to imagine a future um, that's more equalised and has more choices rather than less Mm. but um, I think that's it's interesting as um, Farage moves they have a sense of good and in bad places places to go places to move away from and um, but at the same time are like really pragmatic in, mm. in terms of um, and again that's that story about Scotland is significant because mm. they say you know I can see the problems in Scotland but actually in terms of access and healthcare, in terms of not being frightened every day to walk down the road Scotland has been a good place for mm. me but I do I do want to go to uh, another place yeah. in, that, in, that, in that San Francisco um, and meanwhile the places that Farage has um, left behind and lost to some extent they're um, remembered as bad, bad places or places where, um, you know, sort of homophobia and transphobia mm. it's, that's a story that Farage has sort of encouraged to tell through the um, asylum process as of well Of course,
0: yeah, 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 of course Oh yeah, so that's so that's really interesting, so um a kind of uh like hostile environments of um in order to to be here mm-hmm. encourage people to tell a story of the other the place that someone is fleeing as this kind of other lesser less liberal um place that's really interesting I, yeah mm-hmm. um, um yeah sorry i've got completely sidetracked that is really interesting um because Svarge is actually also wanting to go back to morocco uh when they they uh, kind of their, their journey was like san fran and then back to morocco uh, as a kind of um as a kind of well, I can't remember how they were kind of framing that as a kind of uh, to go back there to as as their becoming self I suppose and then to come, to go back to morocco as their as themselves mm-hmm. as a subject
1: uh, i think it was um to work with to be more like an activist and to make a difference right. In, in Morocco, so yeah. yeah. That was their still, you know, like the home was with them, but they would want to shift home. Yeah. <laughs> in order to return. Yeah.
0: It's a really interesting story about agency. And I think this is a, a theme which does come up is to um is that the 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 story that could quite easily be told about working class queer folk is one of uh, of having A lack of agency um but actually there appears to be quite a lot of agency quite a lot of hope in a lot of the stories through mutual aid or small acts of solidarity or um communities of belonging and the idea of just kind of like just putting up with the day-to-day kind of uh barriers and trying to find a just trying to find a way of overcoming them and there was that kind of not pitted against but in it i've found it interesting to draw comparisons with the more, I suppose, normative stories of the nuclear family, at uh, the kind of more middle class liberal family unit, who perhaps aren't having to um perhaps are facing fewer difficulties or different difficulties. And it almost seemed as if there was kind of sometimes less agency there. Did did was the, how how did you see agency coming out through your through your interviews with um, your participants?
1: mm yeah. Um, hmm. So I, I think there was definitely like there was definitely a lot of humour um, as mm. well, which was something I was keen to uh, sort of make make clear. Um, it wasn't it wasn't just like a move away from working classness and um, a desire to be middle classness. In fact, I think there was often quite a lot of critique of middle classness. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the baggage, if you like, that goes with that um, yeah. and all those kind of connotations and normativity, you know, having stuff. And um, so there, there was, I would say at times like an explicit refusal of that. And sometimes that did come across in the more like the mutual aid stuff mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I know I wanted to give that a place because I don't think that's uh, seen and um, that sort of everyday getting by. Um, yeah. Or sometimes that comes through as really romanticised, like that idea, you know, we've heard it time and time again of giving your neighbour a cup of sugar. It's mm-hmm. like, well, it's, it's it's more complicated than that. It is fraught, it does cause arguments, um, but some of that is dealt with with humour. And... Um, mm-hmm. And so I think the I can remember the participant that you mentioned earlier who's refusing that idea of the you know the flat cap, mm. um, and they talk about just knowing the aunties up the road or in the close or just known and that being okay like nothing has to be announced nobody has to come out it's you can just sit with that kind of complexity, um, and I think during the pandemic there was like a real um, and much needed uh, working outside the system or working outside the welfare state when the welfare state fails, you know, people providing mutual aid and certainly a lot of queer activity around that. Mm. And I really want to kind of weave that thread of, um, well, who's always been doing that? And it's never necessarily been called mutual aid in big capital letters, sure. but also some of the activities like caring um. Catering for your mom who might not speak English, or, you know, um, again, Jocelyn's story of sending money back to the Philippines. Um, she's living in a house with all uh, international um, workers, nurses, who are all uh, en- engaged in that, but never, I um, think it's really interesting that she talks about, we're not going to talk about home. Mm because that makes us too sad so mm. again that it can be seen as like it doesn't really fit in with this families of choice story about right. everything being happy but it does still shatter that normative normative idea of an isolated happy household mm. um, that, that I think is part of that like not wanting to be middle classness or what is this middle classness anyway um and I re- I did struggle that again with some of the parents. Um, so I should say, you know, the books really focuses on working class queers. But in the, in those um, across time, I have interviewed people that have identified as working class and, and middle class and, and between. Um, I found it quite hard to, you know, I wrestled m- myself because I think when you're sort of politically committed to queer groups, it can be hard to um, criticise them and especially when you know that so much um, social attention is often on them. Yeah. Um, and so I recognise that middle-class uh, families were often struggling too, and sometimes it was struggling with that very notion of respectability, as do you know yeah. what, you're you're always going to feel that, what, what is it they were striving for. And I think um, sometimes that is more about, I guess, recognition and recognition for rights that you've not had. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes... in. I think that can make him all the more desiring of wanting to fit in and yeah. to have some recognition, and for others, they have just gone. Well, this is not something that I or my community or you know my neighbourhood will ever have. Um, mm. What else? What else can be done then?
0: Yeah, and I think one of the the other really interesting themes that came out of this for me as well is the how. Um, during this period, it's been a tumultuous period of dramatic mm. political change, but also cultural change. The, I suppose what we would call the um, what we might call the neoliberal subject or the the individual subject has been produced over that time, both uh, through the stories we tell about what it is to be the, a subject, uh, a person, human existing. Dear listener, uh, maybe you, dear listener, perhaps you are a subject. I hope all I hope all my listeners are in some way subjects or agents um but uh, not bots none of you are bots that's good uh, there are thousands of you you're not bots that's important to me um but this but the, the individualization of um class and queer identity has has also materially uh, been produced through things like for example the loss of Surestark stock centers um, mm. Which came up in the book, and mm. a lot of people take the piss out of short sure start centers as being the thing that Blair did that wasn 't you know that existed for a bit and it wasn 't very good and now you know the problem was not necessarily the short sure start centers but it was the the lack of the transfer of power um uh, you sexual health kind of comes up a lot in your stories and like sexual health clinics and things and uh, i which is where I used to work uh, a lot of spent a lot of my working life in those clinics and they Largely gone. A lot of those have largely, a lot of those spaces have gone. I used to be a youth worker. Those spaces are pretty much gone. Um, certainly, where I trained as a youth worker. So the sites at which there was possibility for collectivity have gone. So which has produced these like individual subjects in there, I suppose, uh, in, in these uh, the kind of nuclear units. And that is what it is to be a, a kind of like a a successful queer subject is to be. Is to be yeah. this kind of uh, agentic uh, self, isn't it? And it's yeah. really interesting how your book really tells. This is one of the stories that keeps coming out throughout throughout a lot of your interviews.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was taken right back there to the um, the young gay men's group in the northeast of England because it's like those places don't exist, and as critical as we were of them at the time, you know, i mm. space that has a door policy, it's not letting me in, uh, yeah. you know, too much alcohol, whatever the critique <laughs> was, you're like, can we have those spaces <laughs> back now? Uh, yeah, it's true. it's so true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember, like in the so the early 2000s, there were like people saying, you know, can we have some something that's not like just a, a school hall that has it's not. And there's a great quote, I don't think it's in the book, but somebody says it, something like, it's just you know, it's either a a squash a cup of orange squash and a plastic cup or a feather boa there's nothing in, in between and it's like we could we could maybe have the full range but i think you're right i think it's a lot that's been shut down um and things have moved online and supposedly open up space mm-hmm. um it, you know and we see this even through the things like the hashtagging you know, of uh intersectionality yeah uh it's like these lists of discrete things rather than a collective that become your own individual bio. And I think I think it's Will um in the book that uh, talks about um I think I am intersectionality and that becomes like an, a, a, a personal character and announcement. Mm. Um, and they're you know, and I mean, this this exists beyond will, will is not to blame. But yeah. I just use it as an example of how can we come embody intersectionality as that sort of um, recited uh, tick list, if you like, yeah. rather than it as a practice um, where we're all going to fail at it, and we can, uh, and it's all work for us to do, right?
0: I mean, intersectional with whom, as well, isn't it? Like, wh- how, like, where are those spaces where we can be? we can be intersectional with you know so yeah the criticism a lot of queer spaces was that there were i, mean, I should say dear listener I'm, I'm not queer i am straight but doing queer things queer adjacent queer coalition queer collaborator um but you know a lot of places that a lot of queer spaces that were uh that were available were very white very ableist um just uh lacking in Accessibility, which you talk about in the book as well, really uh, important interviews about disability uh, in your book, which we're quite happy for us to chat about. But a lot of those spaces have also gone. So you know, the queerest thing I've ever seen recently was um, a furry meetup in a Weatherspoon. So there, <laughs> there are possibilities to queer spaces, but those queer spaces weren't weren't great. But have also many of them have gone, um, and so it that that is where the, that that I suppose that is the that what that is what produces the logic of the individual person who can say that they're intersectional, which is um that's the kind of logic of it, isn't it? Which is incredibly like well, I find it a bit depressing. But I don't know, what do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is it's uh it's pretty depressing unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and and I think that that point about the whiteness of these spaces, um because these are not as like I've always struggled with that. Like if you're asked if, if you're talking about loss, we need, we need to be careful not sort of romanticising that as a, as a state to return to, like, yeah. like the nation, for example. And so um, I was thinking about Nika's story um, and, and Nika lives in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I interviewed Nika, I was like returning to the Highlands or, or in, in a particular city, like 20 years after I'd been before and it was a very different city and it had... Um, i had a uh, lgbt plus the um, uh, cafes although somebody's pulled me up and said there's no cafes but if if it's got a rainbow flag i'm calling it an lgbt right. cafe at least um I, but we were kind of like uh i was aware that we were being surveilled it felt like mm. uh, maybe it's not that friendly actually but I. I I don't think that so you can have like queer friendly or queer spaces but still experience them as pretty as pretty hostile which is maybe a repetition you know and maybe we're saying same thing same thing um, and in terms of um, disability as well um, people they talk about that um, and yeah. occupying, occupying spaces differently and and what what that would mean but um, yeah I, I definitely think um, in terms of uh, some areas so talk about um provincial versus cosmopolitan spaces and where do mm-hmm. we imagine like, queer life residing and, and um, quite often asked like where did you find them and I'm like look I've told you I've interviewed like 250, whatever hundreds mm-hmm. right hundreds of yeah. people I can still be pulled back to that question well, where did you find them and the answers like everywhere yeah. um, <laughs> and it's not just in the LGBT community centre of the past um, but I think it says something about what is imagined in these other places whether right. that's morocco or the highlands yes uh,
0: yeah. yeah i remember when i was writing my first book with uh meg john barker uh in 20- 2016 so i was telling my f- I'm from a working class family and um i went up north and i was uh and then i realized that i was having to explain meg john's pronouns because meg john was a they and I was telling my auntie Maureen, who's sadly passed away since then, and she gave me a right bollocking and said, don't you come up here with your London ways trying to teach us about these things. We've always had these. Someone went I'm the kid, you know, the street where I grew up on, we called them a tomboy or we don't know, but we always referred to them as a they and it just made sense. And, you know, so I'm like, oh God, okay. So I was like othering my own family. And I think there is that kind of thing where where we take these kind of Liberal middle class discourses about queerness, and think that they can't possibly exist in these other spaces. These kind of, uh, I'm going to use a fancy word, subaltern spaces. These kind of like, invisibilized spaces uh, that we were kind of talking about. And I kind of recognise that a lot. I don't know whether that's just a kind of like a something that I see in me, and so I can see it in other people. But I think that was perhaps those kinds of ideas were also coming out from some of your interviewees and in, in some of your writing as well. I think is that right?
1: That That's definitely right. And I think a lot of them, um, I mean, I, I guess we imagine sort of queer life um, or that moment of coming out and transition is sort of um, often told as a moment of, like, escape from family, you mm. know, moving yeah. to another city or moving to the university. And that's a place where you come out. And mm. um, a lot of people never had that story to tell. Right. But still had the vocabulary of uh, being queer and using different terms Um mm. Uh, over time, and I, I, you know, I think uh, I think it's Sally who opens one of the chapters and says, "You know, call me, um, Dyke, and call me this, call me." That. There's a whole wide range of vocabulary of terms, but then goes, "I'll settle, I'll just settle on on lesbian," um, and I think that's that's really important to remember, like you know. The acronyms and the terms are like for our use, never to fit us in, and um, they all stretch beyond that. And I think I talk about working from the working, bit um, with the Scottish Parliament during the pandemic, mm. and um, you know, I, I thought I thought, well, I'll, I'll use the same sort of acronym, um, and I generally always use LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. and because at some point you need to say, right, so I was like, yeah, I'm definitely like the queue is going in there um, and it kind of came off that policy document and um, because um, like like lots of parlance um, they've got as far as LGBT um, and like the LGBT action plan yeah. um, and I just think that's really interesting um, how a community vocabulary that, that is still contentious, you know, and um, yeah, Within in between um, terms that how that is misfitting and bumping up against um, like a policy uh, language yeah. and an academic language uh, yeah. and so on. Yeah, so
0: it's, it's about um, it's the it's the it's the how we make use of these terms, isn't it, and what we do with them. And and I think that I think in that way, uh, this kind of leads me to just the final kind of question I have for you, which is: I suppose that when we start to have these. Um, if we start to make these kinds of terminologies kind of fuzzy or think about what we might do with them or what they might what the terms might do, uh what square brackets else, close square brackets might they do, uh, which is like an academic kind of uh uh like way of phrasing it. Um then we can start to then there is this possibility of like connection and solidarity with folk because and I was kind of I was certainly reading this in terms of there was the there was the church, wasn't it? Wasn't there with the I can't remember the MCC church,
1: right? Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And that gave that gave me some kind of fuzzy feelings of solidarity and um, uh, the and that there are there are hopeful possibilities and that when mm. that when we get to these like granular kind of stories, we get to see them in ways that we can't see them when when it's the discourse of this is it this is what it is to be working class and this is what it is to be queer and we can't have one above the other and that kind of uh, Awful identity politics of the the left sometimes does, but yeah. there is the, there are those in those in these granular spaces. There is this possibility of solidarity, isn't there?
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely think so. And it it was important for me to write um, a yeah. oh, more hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> um, Book as well, because you know, even when we're telling our stories of kind of pain and exclusion and inequality, um, you know, as somebody who's benefited from um, you know state funded education, um, and as somebody who's you know climbed the ladder, if you like, in academia, I don't want to then pull it away and say, No, we, uh, education is a yeah. uh, space for you, or it's you, there's only pain here, and um, even during moments of strike action, you know, I think I am somebody who's benefited. From education so education should be a place of hope and uh, maybe that is just in the production of a working class uh, reading list or you know um, decolonising the curriculum for example or thinking about the feminist classroom I think there's a moment of hope and things can be done but I think that um, MCC is a, a really great example as well I think um, of that sort of community Getting by um often at the forefront, um because I suppose like in a time of equality legislation, sexuality and religion are often pitted against each other, and I was really um compelled by MCC as an example because it's done things like civil partnership um mm-hmm. um ceremonies um intergenerational congregations for a long time before the and before the legislation. So those moments of connection and communication um, again not idealized, but lots of young um younger people talked about that as a safer space. Um mm-hmm. and that practice of church hopping like being really a gen and I think that those movements um, mm-hmm. like and if we can think about that sort of hopping as a continual practice. Yeah. Um, yeah i i feel
0: i feel hope yeah definitely um and i think this this is uh where work like yours is really has this potentially like transformative power because we often are not paying attention to individual actually existing lives, and I think it's too easy to produce a kind of uh a kind of a hopeless idea of uh subjectivity generally like working class and queer subjectivity it's very easy to say it's all hopeless um paying attention to the to the granular and and uh yeah people how people's lives are actually existing and emerging and uh in some cases thriving against you know what we might perceive as being against all lots is really important, and it's not not radical to do that. You know, it's not kind of selling out or you know being. It's not a Tory thing to do to say, look, it, even under these horrendous conditions, people are still able to act in solidarity and thrive. So, um, I'm really glad that came out from reading a book, and it's certainly something I've taken away.
1: Well, thank you. I'm so pleased that it came through to you as somebody has read it, and thanks for reading it.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, should we do another plug for the book and your work generally? So, oh, <laughs> another plug: working class queers, time, place, and politics. Buy it at Pluto Press. Um, and that, where do you want people to find your work <laughs> or get in touch with you? You have like yeah, a website. So the, or...
1: I think there's a wee bio blurb on the yeah. Pluto website, actually. But yeah, be in touch. Yeah,
0: and uh, also just lastly, what are you doing next? Do you, you're still doing uh, doing more research in this area?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I laugh at this because it's um, you know I'm not going anywhere. So I was like, is is this like is this the last word on on working class queers or or am I going to keep going? And um, I think I think there's loads still to write about. It's it's not the last word. Um, you know, when I was reading. When I was reading for the book, I was like, oh, God, we'll just keep going round in circles. And I think that's just like, there's something productive if repetition and going round and round. So um, the project that I'm doing is about queer social justice. I'm doing that for the next academic year. Right. Um, and uh, I suspect class will be a big part of that story too. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me, at
1: Yeah, thank you. <laughs>